Thomas Green here with Ethical Marketing Service on the podcast today. We have Sanjeev Chitri. Welcome, Sanjeev. Thank you. It's absolutely a privilege to be on your show, Thomas. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's my pleasure. Would you like to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, uh, fundamentally, uh, I can be classified under the category of an entrepreneur um, with the passion of being a serial one. Uh, and uh, what is an entrepreneur is a subject to a lot of definitions. But uh, the simple thought process for me in, in this is to drive to creating reality of what you think is feasible within the capabilities of you and your resources to drive and success and measure success some measure in terms of wealth, some measure in terms of capture of social impact, but that is, to me, a, a definition of an entrepreneur. And if that is the definition, then I consider myself a lifelong serial entrepreneur. <laughs> so that's, and, uh, that's <laughs> what would you say the the major distinction between being a entrepreneur and a serial entrepreneur? What would you well, uh, in my opinion, only the difference is the madness continues. <laughs> so so uh, I, I believe uh, that once you get the inspiration and the feeling of boundless operational minds, which typically what entrepreneurship is driven by, then containing that mind again is a very difficult process. Mm. And so most entrepreneurs, whether they fail or they succeed, stay in that state of existence. So for me, entrepreneurship is also a state of existence. And stay in that state of existence because it allows them that freedom to operate in the space they are the most comfortable with. So those people that continue that and do not get uh, you know, daunted by the social impact for the family needs, of course, you know, and transform from maybe a, a try at an entrepreneurship to back to what they were doing and comfortable. Then other than that, I believe most of entrepreneurs are minded to be serial entrepreneurs. That's my overall thought process. You know? So okay. I am in that category a serial entrepreneur. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest um, that it's exactly the case that as soon as someone stops or let's say they sell their company or something, they they run for field, you know, they want to get back into it. So um, is that kind of what you meant? Yeah. See, but, this, you know, if you consider selling on the company as a as a necessary criteria for serial entrepreneurship, then you are really limiting the serial entrepreneurship people to those who define success as exits, right? Mm. In, in my opinion, serial true serial entrepreneurs are those who never give up of trying being in the business or the profession or the, in the mental state of being an entrepreneur. Because as you know, very few exits overall, whatever the statistics are, Two, three, four percent, whatever the numbers define or categorize, but uh, I call it the grit entrepreneurship. You know, because you have ninety-nine point nine percent of these global entrepreneurs 
really, really working hard each day and deal after transactions after transactions or companies after companies. But that and only a few of them really I can categorize them as glamour entrepreneurship where they never have to worry about the resources, the cash, the, you know, there's more than what they need and, and things like that. I, my book really is not meant to address glamour entrepreneurship. It is meant to really address the mindsets and potentially enhancing the success for the great entrepreneurship space. Uh, I'd like to, um, you said that the book is for grit entrepreneurs. What would you define, uh, what's the definition for a grit entrepreneur? So in general, as you have known and your readers and listeners know, that uh, entrepreneurship is a lot of challenges taken at a time uh, by a person or a team. And, and these things are mostly financially oriented, technically oriented, process oriented. And, and those, each one of them require a tremendous amount of mental and obviously financial resources. When I define great entrepreneurship, I define that as operating in scant resources. You know, you don't have the old venture capitals when they are funded, you know, they're funny. A company, typical example is the vision fund. You want 10 million, I'll give you a hundred million, you know. So then the entrepreneur doesn't even know how to spend the damn hundred million dollars, but now he is on a spending spree of creating whatever is possible. Now I'm not saying which is right or wrong. I'm saying that that doesn't require leveraging, thinking, Every getting up at four o'clock in the morning, you know, staying till 12 and worrying about where the next paycheck is going to come from, all of that, or the where, what would you take to the supplier? How would you negotiate terms with the supplier? How the hell are you going to tell this consultant your stock that is worth not yet anything that he could take in return for the cap? Those kinds of resources that you have to fight for in order to build success. I believe contribute to great entrepreneurship. Yeah, I know, I know exactly what you mean. So um, uh, I've been there, <laughs> I suppose is the, <laughs> the way I would say that. So the book is called What Not to Do in Entrepreneurship. Why should entrepreneurs read it? Yeah, so this is one of the you know purpose of, of the transformation of mind. The re I, I'm not saying that the entrepreneurs should read all the book. I'm saying the entrepreneurs can look at the challenge that they are managing and read a chapter or two to guide them into some of the things that would help them get tools. Now, why? What not to do? So, as you know, Thomas, there are hundreds and thousands and millions of books and videos on what to do. The challenge with what to do is that what their cases of what to do are so general that it and every entrepreneurial venture is a customized transaction by itself. So you are now using the rain, you know, the rainforest kind of the rain falls everywhere and hope you get the damn, you know, seeds out of it. The entrepreneurial minds of what to do are, are more of you know, overall framework, but most of the time, entrepreneurs are learning on the job. Mm 
and they think that that is a part of their greatness, that is a part of the definition of an entrepreneur. I call it swimming up the Niagara. And, and, and you can understand that if that is a measure of your success, then that's okay. But the measure of success of entrepreneurship is not swimming up the Niagara, but swimming down the river to achieve the success and the goals that you want to do. Mm -hmm. So if entrepreneurs can have various tools in a toolbox of what not to do. For example, when you were a child, your parents were constant telling you, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. So, you you know, as I'd say in my thing, sometimes I thought my, my name was, don't do that, you know. Kind of. and, and the thought process for that is for us to learn that poison kills you or something hurts you should not be your experience, it should be your knowledge. And with that purpose in mind, I began to think about providing the tools in what not to do. Now, the purpose of the uh, book or the book, um, the information is really to do a transformation in the entrepreneurship space. And that is because today with all these millions of books and videos and people who don't even have never been an entrepreneur writing about what not uh, about what to do you know, and writing videos and they've never started a jab company but they write books and videos right and that is the result because of which the needle of success of entrepreneurship has not changed and even though the number of entrepreneurs are growing like crazy the success percentage needle is stuck between two and three percent. And that is because if the most of the people are repeating the same mistakes that other entrepreneurs are doing unknowingly. And, and so therefore, if I can provide them pathways to avoid those mistakes through of my personal experience, and the experiences of a multitude of entrepreneurs in different fields, successful and failed, men and women, different cultures across the globe, and bring that knowledge in a summarized manner, including their experience to be shared on the, on the, on the video, then that is what would really help, I believe, entrepreneurs, that learning is learning of what not to do will enhance the use of the resources, enhance the time of success, because in learning what not to do in business, a lot of time and resources are wasted. Mm -hmm. And so I would like to enable those tools, not just my personal knowledge, but a, a, a collection of the wisdom of different entrepreneurs in that space. And that is why I decided to write the book, What Not To Do In Entrepreneurship. In one line, I wanted to transform the art of entrepreneurship, which is defined by the probability, because it is a probability of success, into a science of building wealth through tools in what not to do. That is my purpose in writing. Well, it's a good answer. Um, if I'm understanding the metaphor, the book would be the parent. The advice is the, the message, you know, don't do that because you'll get hurt. And the child is the business. Um, and yes. the advice is going to stop them from getting hurt, which is essentially in the market. Is that 
accurate. Yes, absolutely. Very well put. Very well put, Thomas. Very well put. Thank, Thank you, you for that. Uh, and is the book for all businesses? Can you apply the the principles in the book to to reach in every business or entrepreneur? Yes. So uh, you know, entrepreneurship is is like I say, is a mental training. It's not a profession. And so what I have done is classified the different types of entrepreneurship into horizontal entrepreneurship, vertical entrepreneurship, disruptive entrepreneurship, opportunistic entrepreneurship. And so different businesses fit these different profiles. For example, if you are just opening up another uh, hotel, then I call that under the area of horizontal entrepreneurship because you are replicating what is. If you are going, going up and down the supply chain, if you now have a grocery shop and you want to open a restaurant, I call that a vertical entrepreneurship because you're going down the supply chain or you're becoming a distributor. I'm just giving you examples of that. Or disruptive entrepreneurship is, you know, somebody comes up with this crazy idea of, of replacing travel agents, you know, and, and, and now you have a disruptive entrepreneurship. And obviously there are more criteria than that. And opportunistic entrepreneurship is it is pandemic now and you want to produce more of your sanitizers. That's to me is an opportunistic entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. So by categorizing broadly such different businesses, I believe I can at least provide some tools in each of the space of entrepreneurship. Okay. And um, regarding capital, uh, which is obviously highly important to be successful in entrepreneurship. Can you highlight some of those principles that you talk about in the book? Yeah, I mean, capital is the nerve and the heart and, and the blood of the business, right? And so although we are addressing the space of great entrepreneurs, uh, it capital is still a strong source now of, of enabling success. And so my... For, uh, uh, import, given the importance I need to give to capital, it is the largest chapter in the book. And, and the reason being, because not only is the sources of capital important to resonate with the need and the time of the business, but it is the type of the capital that is also critical. And as you know, Thomas, the fundamental of life is driven by golden rule, the man with the damn gold rules, right? So, and entrepreneurs, nobody better than them and their team know how to what it is to require to drive success. But when you take capital, you are driven by different constraints, especially if it is venture capital where their purpose of investment and your purpose of creating a successful company could be entirely different after a certain period of time. And, and so my uh, sort of the, looking at the spectrum, I call it the spectrum of capital, is in three spaces. What I consider as the angel or the law or the emotional capital. Emotional capital is I like Thomas, I like his venture, let me write a check and I, I know he, we will do well. Oh, that's family and friends and, 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 and you have maybe even some angels put into that category. Then the other spectrum of that is what I define with a very 
a strict word called cutthroat capital. A cutthroat capital is where I don't care, Thomas, what your venture is. You know, if my numbers are not done and you don't meet, you know, I am done with you. And, and there is no, there is no emotion or there is nothing, there is nothing engaging in that. It's a pure numbers game. I call that private equity is an absolute example of cutthroat capital. Venture capital, depending upon the source, most of them end up in that space. Mm -hmm. And then because of the wealth of the globe is expanding so significantly now, which is private wealth or family wealth, you know, or other loans and, and bank, that creates a category of capital called logical capital. And logical capital is where their returns are expected are logical. They are not looking to control. They are not looking to drive. And that resonates perfectly with the entrepreneurial sources. Of course, entrepreneurial must, entrepreneurs must learn to do risk executed, risk mitigated executions because otherwise they are playing with other people's money. But at the same time, having a source of logical capital. So in the book, I define the various sources of logical capital. And there is nothing wrong, by the way, with tapping into the cutthroat capital when you know that that is what you are handling. And there are certain criteria that best suit in that kind of space. So in this source of capital spectrum, I, my purpose and guidelines and thought process that I share are related to being in control of your destiny by defining the spectrum of capital. So capital is like dollars, pounds, whatever the currency is. If you put through a prism, you can see the various colors or various types. And so my purpose is to enable the entrepreneurs to see those capital in various lights so that they can have the choice of choosing and resonating and partnering with the right type of capital and, and not get involved where you work for four years and then somebody makes a decision in your destiny and all that time and efforts have gone to waste. And again, it is the purpose is to enhance the probability of success of the entrepreneurship. Good answer. There's a phrase which I'm interested in, which is, as I understand it in the book, which is moving the needle of success. Can you um, go into that a bit? Yeah. Uh, see, you know, when you speak of entrepreneurship in a layman's term, the first thing they associate that is risk. Well, it's very risky. And, and, and what does that mean? You know, it's very risky. What does that mean? And, and the, 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 the way they get that feeling is because they have heard that when, you know, 10, uh, venture start, maybe one succeeds and, and the five fail in the first year and the f three fail in the next four years and, and the one becomes average and one becomes something. So they've heard all of these things. And, and so uh, that is associated. And then there is, of course, the real data. How many entrepreneurs after seven years still stay in business? And, and that data on an average over the last 10, 15, 20 years, as much as technology has evolved, has consistently showed that it is between one to 3%. 
So that's what I meant by the needle. You press on the accelerator, but the needle doesn't damn move. It stays at the one to three percent. So that is the sort of reference in moving the needle. And if I I can enable, or we can enable that needle to move, which then transforms the art of entrepreneurship into the science of success. And that's where I like to get the needle, provide the tools so we can move the needle. And the way needles moves is by putting science behind it, not by, you know, just putting, doing the same thing over and over again, because, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. So the, the needle is not moving, which mm. means that entrepreneurs are doing same things over and over again. Really interesting, isn't it? How uh, how society has changed so much, how technology has changed so much, and yet those numbers don't change. Don't change, yes. And it is because every potentially most people may be doing the same thing over and over again because it gives the same damn results. Mm. So that's my sort of thought process. It's a really good point. Why is driving exits important as an entrepreneur? And how is that different from increasing shareholder value? Increasing shareholder value is an ongoing process. Driving exit is a measure of the success of that process. There are, I mean, the, you cannot drive exit effectively if you have not disciplined yourself to increase shareholder value all the way through. I mean, yeah, you can you can do a fire sale of anything, you know, a company that's worth ten million dollars. You can sell it for half a million dollars to somebody. That's not driving exits. Right? That decimating shareholder value. So, uh, I want to speak about the sh building the shareholder value first, and then I will address the thing about how that transforms into driving exits. The you know every entrepreneur, most of them are always focused on building a product or a service that they think will improve either the quality of the life, value propositions, whatever the current marketplace is. And, and they get engaged. But what is important is they don't realize that every company has two products or services. One is the element by which they are able to engage the value proposition. And the second is the shareholder value because entrepreneurship, no matter how you put it, is at the end purely about building wealth. If somebody is not measuring entrepreneurship and building wealth, then they are not in the business of entrepreneurs. It is because it has to be associated with wealth. Now, measure of wealth may be different, but wealth is the end point of entrepreneurship, of measure, right? So shareholders are a part of that wealth process. And because whether you are a shareholder, your management is a shareholder, your grandma is a shareholder, or your investor is a shareholder, they're all shareholders in that enterprise. So an enterprise must and always be aware that it has two products. One is the business that creates the transaction, and other is the shares or the um, currency that measures that value. And shareholder value is that currency that measures that value. Now, you can have a shareholder value and not have any ability to capture it. So 
capturing that value is done by exits. Now, exits doesn't necessarily always mean that you have a liquidity event or an IPO or an acquisition. If you take exits is a measure of increasing value from point A to point B. Right? So therefore, if an entrepreneur and team has started and then at point B, uh, a preferred round comes in and some of your initial shareholders want to liquidate a little bit of their holding, that is exit. But rest of the people have not exited. So exits cannot always be affiliated with liquidity. It is a measure of the in, uh, benchmarking of the value for some and measure of the bench uh, uh, and getting some liquidity out for the other. Although in the minds of the entrepreneur, exits and liquidity are the same. So if entrepreneurship is about creating wealth, then entrepreneurial minds must be trained to driving exits. Right. Now, driving exit is a science. Thomas, because you have the oh shit effects, you know, in it. You look back and you say, oh, you know, I got $10 million for my company, $100 million for my company. But if I would have done that, I could have gotten more. Well, could have done, would have done, don't matter. So the reality is that if an entrepreneur what must engineer an exit, he must place a mirror at the time at which he thinks, he, he, he or she thinks, does need an exit. Then you can look back in that mirror and say, what could I have done to drive maximum? And then engineer those elements in driving the exit. So when I say driving the exit, I mean planned exit, not something that somebody comes and says, oh, I'll give you a check tomorrow. And I'm, those are very rare. Because you want to convert this into a science, you have to engineer them. So engineering exit is a part of training entrepreneurial mind who must understand that shareholder value must be consistently addressed during the process of driving exits. So kind of like, would you say cause and effect? The cause being shareholder value gives the effect of a profitable exit. That is absolutely correct. That is absolutely correct, Thomas. Okay. Um, the next few questions are, I took a look at the YouTube channel, great content, by the way. So if anyone listening is interested in more then you know, there's lots of good stuff. And one of them is your principle on keeping it simple. Can you tell me what that means? And also, do you think that people should or entrepreneurs should keep it simple in business? So this is, by the way, a lot of things that I learned through my experiences, right? So I can share with you the transformation that I have gone through. And, and of course, when I interviewed other people, I also f find the same thing. So I was not the lonely character doing that, but it's the same thing that I said, we, we all make the same damn mistake. That's why the needle doesn't move kind of thing, right? So keeping it simple, sir, I call it not stupid, you know, the purpose of that is for an entrepreneurial mind is trained to be a complex mind. The more complex a solution, the more achievable or the more genius entrepreneur thinks his mind is. Because they try to figure out how can this be done and how can that be connected and how can that be leveraged. 
it's an incredible exercise in intelligence but it creates a very complex situations in execution because for example as i say in the book or any others things that you can if you want entrepreneurs like say oh you know what i want to do a funding but i can do one funding and by the way if i do that funding i can leverage that to my distributor and have him put the money in and so they are concocting all this success in their mind and it looks good on the piece of paper oh i can leverage a to create the value and leverage b you know it's the lady with the milk the milk, the spirit milk story right the carrying the milk and i can sell the milk in the bazaar and buy the cow and etc 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 the reality is that complex transactions or complex thought processes are uncontrolled by external environments and for example if you are doing a investor and a distributor funding at the same time at the same round for example something goes wrong with the distributor because the guy left his job that you were negotiating with now suddenly what you know what you think and what you see is the distributor pulls out now okay the distributor pulls out the investors now think something is wrong they pull out so creating complicated transactions reduces the probability of success so hence my thought process in everything even in engineering the same thing you know i keep it a simple achievable goal you feel achieved if you keep it complex the matter doesn't double it, the risk doesn't double it squares or even quadruples mm -hmm. and so that's why my request to keeping it simple sir in the book not sure why, but um, have you have you heard? It makes me think of minimalism. Have you heard of minimalism at all? Yes, 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 yes. Yes. Sorry. It is it, it it is a way. It is uh, Thomas in a way about minimalism, but you know, uh, minimalism drives to use less things. I am saying just break it down into smaller pieces so you can execute what is manageable and measurable because one success builds on other but when failure occurs it's a house of cards all of it comes down you know? mm. so um i know you've touched on private equity a little bit already but you did a specific video on it so can you go into what private equity is um once it may be in a little bit more detail and whether you think mm. entrepreneurs should use it yeah first of all you know private equity uh, there are good, there, like everything else, there's good private equity and there is, you know, not so good private equity. But overall, in general, private equity is not meant for initial early stage entrepreneurs, right? Private equity is a source of capital where the company or the organization that is offering the capital, they put a little bit of their money and they go, because of their track record, they go to institutions and they have a significant amount of capital available that they invest in lever and leverage a ca existing cash flow. So private equity's fundamental business is to acquire or invest in uh, companies that are that have cash flow that are established that are predictable 
and that they can then take that cash flow and put some significant amount of debt on it with some small amount of equity underlining. Most of that capital may come from themselves or the debt can come from outside institutions or banks. And then the cash flow that is typically used to give to return to shareholders, to investors, or to improve the quality products of the company or the structure of the company or hire more people is now used to pay the debt that is put on the balance sheet. But since private equity business is fundamentally to provide debt, service their debt, and then try to get as much capital that they invested in back and then sell it to somewhere else. So private equity has a five to seven year term in which they kind of churn this capital. And so private equity is not good for entrepreneurs, A, because it constrains and chokes immediately the business cash flow. But if you, and, and, and by the way, private equity has no mercy, so they'll bring their own people, their own teams, and very quickly they promise the world, and in less than one year, the, the management team is gone because they want to take control. They don't want resistance. They want to take control of the operation. They want to take control of the bank balances. They want to take control of how they finance, all of that stuff. And so in that case, the only time it is good for an existing business that uh, entrepreneurs have is if they want, they want, they say, okay, I don't want to be with the company for more than a year or so, and I want to take my cash and leave now. That is only the situation that is good, but that requires an established business. So A, private equity is not a source of capital for early stage entrepreneurs. And B, it is for sure not a friendly capital. And that's why private equity is the worst kind of cutthroat capital. I mean, even in established businesses, Toys R Us was destroyed by private equity, right? Or, you know, so many Sears was destroyed by private equity. I mean, go one after the other. And you see that those are big corporations, by the way. Think about what a poor entrepreneur who would get there, right? But I have seen enough people who sell their business knowing that year from now they'll be thrown out. But you know, if they've gone, they can do something else. That's definitely there is a there is a place for that kind of thing in private equity. Is this um, from experience for yourself, or is it just observations that you've seen this happen? No, so. Uh, I have never sold my business to private equity, but I have been engaged with transactions that private equity has been involved in. And so I have seen it from the capital side. I have seen it from the company side. I have just not accessed private equity for myself. <laughs> On purpose then? Well, now, you know, now that looking back at it, it was the smartest thing to do at that point in time. I probably didn't uh, have a business that was of, of that level of interest to private equity, but because I used public instruments more often where keeping control of my destiny was critical for me. Okay. And I like this one because uh, I think it will help with moving the needle. What does it mean to be penny wise and pound foolish in entrepreneurship? So, you know, we as entrepreneurs always like to be recognized for the everyday effort that we do in small ways, big ways, in society, 
in our colleagues, everything like that. And so that's one element or one sort of box. The other is, you know, we always think that the image creates the success. So entrepreneurs will, you know, say, hey, I don't want to buy that expensive computer, but I would like to have hire a PR firm to let customers know how we are successful. You see the dilemma now. The buying the best computer tools is useful for the business. The PR is just a mirage in the in the in the reality of the marketplace. So those things of facade, great facilities, great furnitures, you know, all that kind of stuff that you can enjoy when you are successful, that if you give them the priority or the importance in the early years, you are taking away from the value that all that getting the biggest bang for the investor or your buck that you have put into the business. So it, you don't need the product, the quality, the service speaks. So invest in the in that business rather than going to you know fancy shows and having great booths and pouring money, which at the end of the show nobody gives a rat's ass about it. So that's what I meant by don't be penny wise and pound foolish. Penny wise being in not investing, say not getting the best tools because you know that. And, but investing in something that you don't know what the returns are or will be or shall be, you know, just because the image kind of picks up. That was my thought process. Do you think people, when they're pound foolish, do you think they're almost uh, consuming or do you think they actually think that it will be beneficial for the business? Most of the time, it's ignorance. Okay. Most of the time, it's it is not understanding the true value. They just look at what they hear outside and they see all these pressure DJs and the guy speaking at an event and they say, oh, then the PR company, which that's how their business. Oh, if you come, I can you know, put you on the shows and things. So then begin to build that image in their mind of what it can be when they should really be thinking of how the hell am I going to make my customer happy? Yeah, mis misplaced priorities. Misplacement of priorities, yes. But priorities, you know, it, it comes out, I, and most of the time, I want to give them that it comes out of ignorance. In my case, when I did it, it came out of ignorance. And um, what are the, some of the things that you were pound foolish about, would you say? Some of the things that um, I have been pound foolish about is one of the things is just, uh, you know, I was at a very small public company, and I've felt that in order for me to increase the stock value of the company, I, I should hire, a, 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 you know, get to know the people and the marketing and the analysts and all of that. And, and so I hired a PR firm. So that's, that's one of my particular examples out of that, right? The, the, and, and, and by the way, you know, <laughs> see that the, the, the challenge of all of this thing is when you are doing it, you are justifying it in the right sense of the word, right? Some of these things are hindsights, and I don't want them to be hindsights for people. That's why I included that in, in this thing. That's why it's in the book. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And so the other other aspect of the uh, pound uh, uh, the uh, pound foolish is you know uh, you look at investing in infrastructure. And this is very important, Thomas. Uh, you, when you go to uh, high, when you get sources of capital that are easier to you know easier to spend money on, you feel that you need to build the infrastructure of the business. So when the product you know goes, you have everything in place. And, but you are forgetting the fact that the customer demand hasn't built up yet. So this is an operational uh, pound wise, penny wise, pound foolish. So you are putting the infrastructure, but you are not putting the money where the you know where the engineering or the things like that are. You are putting it in a manufacturing, outgoing customer service infrastructure, and so that money spent could have been better used in enabling success of the product build. So this I gave you an operational. You know, uh, and, and why it happens? Because you now have the venture, the capital sources saying, "Hey, you know, you have to build scalability, and 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 you have to have this infrastructure, so you must hire these things." And you know that it is going to take you a long time to get the product to be reliable space and everything like that. But you're not trying to hire more engineers there, but you're trying to put more money in the infrastructure. So again, penny wise, pound foolish in an operational sense. You are managing director or owner of the U Group, is that right? Yes. If you had a potential prospect, what would the process be for them? What does that look like? So in the U Group, uh, we do various kinds of transactions, uh, Thomas. Uh, the, we don't do very, very early stage engagements uh, because that is, that is a business uh, that requires a lot of people uh, focus and, and our focus is to deliver shareholder value in the 36 to 48 months about you know anywhere between three to four times the invested value that's our that's our mantra and we seek uh, the other element of it is the one plus one equals 11 and 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 the reason Thomas this is very important in 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 that period of time of execution is because every time you put together, if it's not very clear how the one plus one equals 11, then one plus one equals three, everybody can show you a four, but they screwed up. And then one plus one equals becomes one and a half. So you have degraded the shareholder value. But if you plan and you can reasonably clarity think through one plus one equals 11 and you screw it up because one plus one equals five or four, you still increase the value by screw up. So at the U group, we look for those kinds of projects that allow us our own money and investors that participate with us to create that value equation. For example, we are right now in the process of doing a consolidation in the animal healthcare space because of the arbitrage that exists between private hospitals and public hospitals of a critical mass. So that's the, I gave you an example. So in that 36, 48 months, we would 
enabled the acquisition of a, what we consider as community capture model. So we come up with an engine, an intelligent engine that enables the value creation process, which is the one plus one equals 11. So that's, that's one of the things that we are doing. We also are very supportive of what we consider as the founder control consolidation. Uh, you know that, Thomas, most of the time, entrepreneurs forget the value of the buy and build sort of thought process. So suppose an entrepreneur has a company that is capital available for acquisition, but sometimes it's difficult to have capital available for growth. So, but if you can, as an entity, acquire an infrastructure of you one and they one, and then you can create the value and shorten the time, again, that's the same equation applied of one plus one equals equal. So at the U group, we engage in those kinds of transactions. We have done early stage startups. We do fund our own concepts and company in, in that area, but those are the ones that we are in full control of. So that's the elements of the undertakings that we do at the U group in the value driven by the value creation model, uh, you know, and obviously we don't uh, rarely succeed in one plus one equals 11, but we do succeed in one plus one equals three or four. So, you know, so that's, but that's what the whole purpose of what we do is at the U group. People don't mind when it gets to three or four, though, right? Yeah, but you have to, yes, yes, yes. But, you know, you have to really meticulously look at every aspect of it as to how you get there before you begin to, you know, invest, investor, and our own money, of course. We, we always put our own money first before we go out to bring in investor capital. Do you mind sharing the story of when you were Entrepreneur of the Year? Yeah. Um, so when I did uh, my second company, by the way, in the last chapter uh, of my book is called My Brain Scan, you know, a journey of entrepreneurship. So, you know, starting from the first entrepreneurship to whatever I have been, well, if you scan my brain, how would it look like and stuff like that. So uh, a, a part of that uh, sort of the listing of it, uh, is when uh, in the first one, the first chapter of the book is Once Upon a Time. And it, 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 it is my early uh, second company where I started a company with four people, got a small amount of private capital, and I took it public because nobody else would give me any money to build anything under what was called as public venture funds. And I, I, I tell the story of how I met this person who, you know, gave me this opportunity, etc., etc., and my journey through the law offices and stuff, uh, how I got through that. But what that allowed me to do, Thomas, is to have a public company with five people with less than a million dollars in revenues, uh, in the semiconductor capital equipment space where we changed the way uh, chips were built. Uh, semiconductor chips could not, they would be like Kansas City all over in the chip, but, and you would never get the kinds of complexities that you get into this unless we had invented uh, the thing, technology called chemical mechanical planarization, 
where we would layer one chip over the other. It's just like building a hundred um, a story building with every store being flat. Think about if the first store, the first floor would not be flat, you would have an undulating surface. And, 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 and so we enabled the technology on the chips to make it flat. So you can now build 100 story, 200 story, 300 story buildings, which is why you see the devices size shrinking. So as a result of that technology, uh, I was uh, at the public instrument that I got, I took the company from 1 million to 20 to 85 to 250 to 475 million dollars straight up the curve. And and of course, during the process, I learned a lot of what not to do and made, uh, made mistakes uh, during that process. But I delivered a tremendous amount of shareholder and employee value. And because of that, I was the entrepreneur of the year uh, by Ernest and Young. And, and so I, I look back and I say, was that a success? Uh, probably yes. Could I have done it better? Probably yes. And, and Thomas, when you say you could you could have done it better, probably yes, you say, well, did I fail or did I succeed? You know, because you could have done a lot better. But those are all just looking back 2020 hindsight, 2020 side. So that is why I was given the Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Well, congratulations on that. Very impressive. Can you tell the audience when the book is out and where they can find it? So we are uh, planning the book uh, to be out by somewhere in the end of the first quarter of this year. Mm -hmm. And I uh, we will publish it on Amazon and stuff like that initially. And, and obviously, uh, we are in the process of seeing what kind of other channels of distributions we can put into. And, uh, and my goal is to, you know, uh, provide excerpts of the things that you see on the uh, YouTube, more of the chapters, so that there is an understanding of, in small ways of the content of the book and, and what are the tools that it will, each of those videos that you saw potentially is in the book a chapter. Mm. And, and so, so that allows you, to, and, and obviously you can also see in the book interviews of 15, 20 different entrepreneurs, a woman bank founder, a, a guy in Dubai creating a social entrepreneur, a couple in Dubai creating social entrepreneurship, uh, the, the founder of the largest private, uh, you know, debt firm. Uh, in the, so I, I was very fortunate, the movie makers and, and, and things like that. So I was very fortunate to get a diverse field. And I, I hope that, and of course, I will continue to do these interviews and add to the next, you know, revised versions. But the purpose is to have that kind of a breadth of not only knowledge, but actual learnings from the various entrepreneurs through the scan code connectivity to the video. So I expect the book. I mean, of course, we are working on it, but I expect the book to be out somewhere by the end of this quarter. So probably better to follow you. Where's the best place for people to find you? So you can uh, follow me on uh, the website, What Not To Do In Entrepreneurship, uh, you know, in it, or, or on the YouTube channels, on the YouTube channels, or on every one of the YouTube videos. We are also creating a What Not To Do LinkedIn group so that you can follow us on that also. Well, thank you very much for all the value you have added today. Is there anything else that you would like to add? No, I, I wanted to appreciate your time, the questions you asked, and I hope that 
I provided you some uh, insight into the mind that uh, with which I wrote the book. You know? so. I think one thing that's definitely going to stick is to be careful of being penny wise and pound foolish. I have to check myself on that one. <laughs> 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 we all do, we all do. Thank you so much, Thomas. It's my pleasure, and I will speak to you soon. And and by the way, I, what I wanted to do, Thomas, is at the at the end of the publication of the book, I like entrepreneurs. My purpose is to give an hour or two every day, fifteen minutes each, for various entrepreneurs to just call and talk about their ventures, and in some ways seek an open conversation so that they can get to know feel you know if there are some things that that we could you know try put some light on uh, uh at the when the once the book is published they read they can ask for explanation and that is something that i want to make a habit of so that of course we can you know in every day maybe we can do eight or ten and then in an hour or two, two hours worth of time but that is one of the you know things that we want to offer once the book is published. Well, be sure to message me when the book is released and I'll put some social media posts out for people who have enjoyed this video. Thank you so much, Thomas, once again. My pleasure, Sanjeev, and I'll see you soon.